Well, certainly today a lot of uh, preachers in a lot of places have uh, called a time out in their normal preaching plans to address what's going on in our in our world, in our culture and society. And I certainly understand that. I certainly appreciate it. And I thought about it as well for about three seconds. And, uh, and then I looked at the next text. And the next text up was exactly what we need to hear this morning. The next text up in Matthew chapter 9 is as timely and relevant today as it would be any time, but maybe even more so. I've alluded to it already, but it's in times like these, regardless of where we are and where this is going, which of course God only knows, where Christians need to be reminded that we are the body of Christ. That we are the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus and we represent him in this world. We are his ambassadors and we are his servants and representatives. And so we need to really seize the moment as always. Uh, In some ways, it's just been an amazing uh, week. Uh, The the news has come in ways before seen. I mean, to use the words unprecedented and unchartered waters is often used as an exaggeration, but it's not this time. And this is bigger than at least the reaction after 9-11, for sure. Uh, It's going to have probably a deeper, longer-lasting impact on our economy. It's going to affect every one of our lives. It already has, and it will continue to do so. And so in some ways, we are in uncharted waters uh, as, a, as a culture. Uh, in other ways, though, there's nothing new under the sun. In other ways, creation is groaning. Christians have the answer. We are here for a reason. Time is short. Life is a vapor. And the gospel is the only good news for this world. Right? So it's amazing times that we live in, and I hope it's doing in your life what it's doing in my life, and that's really just firing up my boldness. I think it's an amazing time to be a Christian. It's an amazing time to know Jesus and to be able to live out our faith in the current circumstances. And so today we're going to talk about Christ-like ministry from Matthew chapter 9. It's verses 35 and 38. And I want to start one more time with a slide that we've uh, been showing you and it's been revised a little bit. And here it all is on one screen. Hope you can see that. Uh, so here we are in Matthew 8 and 9. Big picture. I want to just show you the context where we are before we dive in. And we see in this passage, three uh, in this, these two chapters, three cycles of three authoritative deeds per cycle that call us to follow Christ. And so that's what chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew are all about. And you can read about it there. You can be reminded of those past sermons in the first and second cycle. And so where we are today is the very end of this. The third cycle of the deeds has already happened. Last week we saw his authority over death and darkness and dumbness. And that Jesus is more powerful and authoritative than those forces. And today we're on that last section, what we're calling Christ-like ministry. Now, more particularly, and you can take that down now, thank you. I want to give you an observation as to where we are. If you'll go in the text with me to Matthew 9 and verse 35, we get somewhat of a summary statement there in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What turns out, this is almost verbatim a repeat of Matthew 4.23. And in 423 now, in 935, we have really a repeated verbatim bookends. 
And this is very important in Matthew's structure. He's, he's showing us something with this. With these bookends, in between was 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, authoritative words of Christ. And then chapters 8 and 9, authoritative deeds of Christ. Bracketed by these two identical statements that we find here in our verse 35 today. And why that's important is this. Matthew is showing us by repeating this summary statement. He is showing this us that this is really a blueprint of Christ's ministry. This is a summary that communicates to us that this is how Jesus went about doing his ministry. And these are the things that we need to be duplicating as his disciples as we follow him. These two bookends, these two statements of chapter 423 and 935 are a summary of Christ-like ministry. So let me read the rest of the text for you this morning. Verses 36 now to 38. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You see what I mean? (laughs) The next text up is exactly where we need to be this morning. Let's have a short prayer as we pause for just a moment. Father, this is your word that's at stake. I pray that you would help me to teach it and preach it boldly and concisely and clearly. And I pray that you would give ears to hear in this place and a heart to receive and obey for the glory of Christ and the good of our community. Amen. Our sermon idea this morning from this text of 35 to 38 is looking to Jesus as our example. We see the essentials of a Christ-like ministry for the church today. The essentials of a Christ-like ministry. My purpose this morning and our purpose this morning is to make necessary corrections. We're going to look at essentials of what a Christ-like ministry looks like for all time and especially today. And we want to evaluate ourselves. We want to do some self-assessment. We want to, we want to learn what these are, of course. We want to embrace them. But most importantly, we want to make adjustments as necessary. Let's make corrections to our own lives and therefore correcting our church as a whole as we explore what these essentials are in ministry. So there are three of them. And I want to give them all to you in one sentence, and then we'll take them one at a time. The three essentials of Christ-like ministry are as follows. Number one, pursue a balanced ministry to the whole person. Two, with the right motive. And three, bathed in prayer. There's your outline this morning. Pursue a balanced ministry to the whole person with the right motive of compassion, and it's all bathed in prayer. So number one, pursue a balanced ministry to the whole person. Look back at verse 35 with me. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages. This is in Galilee. And as he was going, he was doing three things. He was teaching in their synagogue, number one. Two, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And three, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Here is a balanced ministry to the whole Person, Jesus is demonstrating this as an example to his disciples and to us. Let's break it down one at a time. If we're going to have a balanced ministry, number one, we must begin with explaining the Bible. 
It says he was teaching in their synagogues. Teaching is explaining, it's illustrating, it's clarifying, it's it's making connections, right? It's opening the word of God and explaining to people what this means and what it means to your life. Jesus was doing this as a regular habit of his life. He was seizing his opportunities to go into those local settings and explain Genesis to Malachi to his own people. That is the first need of the human being. That is to understand God's truth. We begin with a ministry to the mind, a ministry to the intellect. You cannot believe in what you don't understand. You cannot put faith in the person who you have not had explained to you who he is and what he has done. And so a balanced ministry to the whole person begins with recognizing that we reach the heart through the intellect. And the Bible must be explained. The Bible must be understood. This is so critical. Now look where Jesus does this. He does this in their synagogues. This is very instructive for us. So again, remember, this is a pattern. This is a blueprint in these summary statements. He went to their synagogues. Of course, it was his synagogues too. His synagogue as well. Why is that important? Because Jesus is working within the existing structures and systems of his culture. He's recognizing the most obvious place to start his ministry is those gatherings every Sabbath of the Jewish people to open the Word of God and to hear it taught. This is very instructive to us. Work within your existing systems and structures of your culture to minister to the whole person, first of all, explaining the meaning of the Bible. Now, I want us to just take a moment now to do some self-assessment, to look at your life. Look at your life and assess two areas. Number one, do you know the Bible well enough to teach another person? Doesn't mean you have to know the whole Bible cover to cover. It just really means you need to know more than they know. <laughs> it could be one, one day ahead of them on the journey. But do you know the Bible well enough to teach another person? Well, if you don't, you need to start learning the Bible because this is how we have a balanced ministry to the whole person. This is how we have a Christ-like ministry. Every Christian needs to know how to explain the Bible to another person, to explain the truth of the gospel to another person. So that's the first assessment. Do you know the Bible? Secondly, ask yourself this. Where is your most obvious starting point? See, Jesus picked the most obvious starting point to explain the Bible to his people. Where is yours? Think about that right now. Consider the people in your world where God has planted you. And ask yourself, what is my most obvious starting point in explaining the Bible to other people as a Christian? So that's the first part of this well-balanced ministry. The second one is, and you can see it there in verse 35, he went about doing what? What does it say? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So we go from explaining the Bible to proclaiming the gospel. And they are similar but different. To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom is to announce the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ for sinners. Right? And we announce this good news. We preach this good news. We proclaim this good news with an aim to conversion. 
You see, where teaching reaches the mind, proclaiming is to reach the heart or the will. We proclaim with an aim that a person will repent of their sins and trust in Christ. So we we proclaim good news, great joy with an aim or a goal or a purpose that people would actually become Christians. They would leave a life of sin and leave a life of unbelief and put their faith in Christ. And you can see, even as I explain that, how that's different from explaining the Bible. How that's different from teaching uh, the truth of, a, of the scriptures. They overlap, but there is a difference. The goal is the same goal Paul had in his missionary journeys. He wanted to proclaim Christ so that there would be repentance toward God, he says, and faith in Christ. And that pictures conversion. Every conversion is repentance toward God and faith in Christ. When we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, we should do so joyfully. We should do so confidently. We should do so expectantly. Gospel means good news. We have the best news. And we've been given an ambassadorship to take it to the world. And it's something to be proclaimed, isn't it? It's something to be announced. It's something to be decisively and confidently shared with others. But we need to understand here that proclaiming goes beyond a data dump. Proclaiming goes beyond a, a, a transfer, a, 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 an information dump, right? Proclaiming must include an appeal, a personal appeal for that person to turn from their sins and to trust Christ. A personal appeal. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him for the remainder of your days? This is essential in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We preach about the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. But if we stop there, we have not proclaimed the good news. If we stop with the facts of the gospel, that you're a sinner, God is holy, Jesus died up for your sins, he, he was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day. If we stopped right there, we have not given a person the gospel. We've just given them the facts. We haven't made an appeal to them, to their will. What are you going to do with this information? The Bible commands that all people would repent and put their faith in Christ. Self-assessment then. Self-assessment as we continue to think about a balanced ministry to the whole person. Ask ourselves this question. When is the last time that you proclaim the gospel? When is the last time that you proclaim the gospel to another person in need? And then ask yourself this question, where is your obvious starting point? For Jesus, it was the synagogue. For Jesus, it was his people. Where is your obvious starting point in proclaiming the gospel to others? Many times we don't need to look any further than our own address, our own home, our own children, perhaps a spouse, perhaps next door neighbors, friends, co-workers, family members. Proclaiming the gospel is required in a Christ-like ministry. May we all do better. May we all grow and make progress. May we all increase in boldness and love and burden for the lost. If I was to ask myself, when is the last time I proclaimed the gospel? And what is my obvious starting point? It would be uh, here and now. right? Here and now. The Bible teaches that God is holy. 
And as a holy God, he cannot approve of any sin. In fact, as a holy God, he must punish any and all sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It's going our own way. Every act of pride or selfishness, every lie, every moment of cheating, lusting, stealing. All of these are sins and many, many others. And God says just one is all it takes to condemn you to hell forever. You can keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. You are guilty of all Because the law came from the one and only God. And that God has expressed his will for mankind morally through his law. Summarized in the Ten Commandments. If you've ever put anything in the place of God in your life, you've been an idolater. You've violated the first three of the commandments. If you ever lied to your parents or dishonored them or disobeyed them, you've violated the law of God. It says to honor your father and mother. If you've lusted after a man or a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you've coveted what belongs to your neighbor, you've you've violated the 10th commandment. And on it goes. And so God has given this law, and this law exposes us as sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions except the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is good. There are no good people. There are only evil people who need Jesus. No one is righteous in their in themselves. No one has done good. We are all fallen and broken and flawed and rebellious against God. And our hearts are full of evil. Don't pretend. Don't lie to yourself this morning that you are a good person. You're not. Don't think this morning that your good deeds is going to move you one inch toward a holy God. It will not. There is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. God must do the work for us. And so the bad news is we're all sinners and God must judge sin. But the good news is God loves us in Jesus Christ. The good news is God is a God of grace and mercy. And he looked at a dead and world uh, bound in their sin and under the power of Satan. And he had a plan all along. And that plan was for God to become a man. They named him Jesus. And he grew up in Israel and he lived a perfect life. And he kept the law that you and I did not keep. He never lusted. He never stole. He never coveted. He never dishonored his parents. He never lied. He never cheated. He never stole. The Lord Jesus was impeccable. He was holy through and through. He was righteous to the core. And he did that on our behalf. And then he went to a cross and paid our sin debt in full. He paid our penalty to a holy God. God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, punishing him for sins he did not commit as he represented others, as he was a sacrifice on our behalf. And they buried him because he was truly dead. But on the third day, God, the Father, showed his acceptance of the payment that Jesus made by accepting, by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is essential to our hope. A dead Savior can save no one, but our Savior lives. The cross is empty and the tomb is empty. And he sits at God's right hand now, ready to dispense forgiveness and eternal life to every person who comes to him. Every person who puts their faith in Christ, he will dispense to you immediately the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of all of your sins. When you stop trusting in yourself and stop trusting in things you have done to earn God's favor and cast yourself on the mercy of God and say, I can't. And God says, but I can. And he saves you. This is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we are to repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ That is the good news that we take to the world. Your sin will only doom you to hell forever. It will never satisfy you. It will never fulfill you. And it will never give you a purpose in life. So why do you love it? Turn from it. Hate it. Renounce it. Get away from it. Run from it like it's the plague itself. And run to Jesus. And admit your helplessness and your hopelessness apart from Christ. Jesus says, all who come to me I will gladly receive. 
He will not cast you out. You have not out Jesus Christ. You have not out his grace. You, your sin cannot rise above the cross. The cross is powerful. God says in his word that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Don't think you're too dirty and don't try to clean yourself up first either. Don't try to fix yourself. You can't come as you are. Lay down your arms. Surrender to the Lord. This is my attempt at proclaiming this good news of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. The third component of this balanced ministry to the whole person. Is we are to care for the body. We are to care for the physical needs of others. Look at the text, verse 35. He was teaching, number one. He was proclaiming, number two. And number three, he was what? Healing. Every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In this model of ministry, in this blueprint of a Christ-like ministry, Jesus comes filled with compassion to meet the physical needs of a broken world. And of course, he's authenticating himself as the Messiah. We've talked about that at length. But he's also modeling for us here now an an awareness and a concern that we should have as Christians in today's world, in today's church, for the physical needs of others. We must care for the body. Christians are those who meet physical needs with a proper awareness that we are whole persons with a soul that can't be seen and a body that can be seen. We are both. And so a Christ-like ministry seeks to alleviate human suffering. A Christ-like ministry seeks to meet physical needs. And so in church history, Christians have led the way in hospitals and clinics and developing medicines and dispensing medicines of seeking clean water, clothing, shelter, food, disaster relief, safe playgrounds, adequate housing. It is Christians who first and foremost should be visiting the lonely Providing rides for those who need them. Meals for those who can't get their meals otherwise. It's why we do things like grief support. And and churches do dementia and Alzheimer's support. Because we have emotional needs and physical needs and relational needs. And we have financial needs. And these are all fair game for the Christian to minister to. Because we are more than just a soul. And Jesus didn't just die for our souls. He died for all of us. And he cares about every detail of our lives. And so we as Christians must care for the body. We mimic Christ then, not by running around pretending to do healing miracles like he did. That's that's not for today. We mimic Christ by having a concern for people's diseases and sicknesses of every kind. So whether it was the Black Plague in Luther's day, or the Spanish flu in 1918... Or AIDS or COVID-19 or whatever else might come down the pipe before Jesus returns. Christ-like disciples should lead the way in caring for the physical needs of others. And we should do this in a way that is neither foolhardy nor fearful. Luther had a lot to say about that back in the days of the Black Plague. Don't run into this thing unguarded and unwise to try to get it yourself in a foolish, foolhardy way. But neither should we run and shrink and hide as Christians. So a balanced ministry then of teaching, proclaiming, and healing that goes to the whole person. I think we have found here a good prescription for parenting. And we have found a good prescription for pastoring. And we have found a good prescription for missions. 
with people like Kevin and Debbie Ludwig. Here's a prescription for children's church. Explain the Bible, proclaim the gospel, and care for the physical needs of those little ones. It it applies to junior high ministry. It applies to senior care ministry. It applies to a widow ministry and a nursing home ministry and everything in between. Why do we play games at Awana? Because we care for the body. (laughs) Because these little kids have a lot of energy and they like to have fun and they need to get that out so that they can sit down and have the Bible explained to them and the gospel proclaimed to them. Why should youth ministries have fun with junior high and high school kids and not just set them down in a chair and lecture to them for an hour? Because we care for the body. Because we're cognizant that they are a body and a soul and they're a young person. You see, this just, this really opens our eyes to how Christian ministry should take place. While we're on this subject, I need to just share this warning. We need to reject the extremes. Reject the extremes. Of unbalanced ministries. For example, fundamentalism and, and slash discernment ministries at times, and, and we would line up with many things there. In fact, we, we are fundamentalists in our belief, but at times fundamentalism has shown little, if any, regard for human suffering or physical needs. This has been a, a, a negative on fundamentalism and discernment ministries. Oh, just preach the gospel, just give the word of God and, and not even recognize that the person you're trying to preach the gospel to is, is starving and they can't even listen to you right now because they're so hungry, right? See, that's just, that's foolhardy. That's not a balanced Christ-like ministry. So we want to reject that extreme. Here's another extreme on the other end of the spectrum. Social gospel ministries that meet physical needs of food, clothing, clean water. But often they do so with little or no regard for the eternal destiny of the person in front of them. With little or no regard for proclaiming the gospel. Oh, they're all about the healing, but they're not about the teaching and proclaiming, right? So we reject that extreme. That's unhealthy. That's not balanced. Here's another that's very common. Gospel preaching churches that just preach the gospel every single week. Just like I did a few minutes ago. That's the sermon every week. But they're never equipping the saints for the work of ministry. They're, they're not giving saints the opportunity to use their gifts and to, and to do these three things themselves. And so it just becomes this little evangelistic service week after week after week after week. And the saints, the sheep, are starving to death. Right? That's not a balanced ministry. That's an extreme we must reject. A Christ-like balanced ministry has all three of these things woven together. All three are happening all the time. That's the balance And so we want to evaluate ourselves on this. Evaluate yourself individually. Let's evaluate our church as a whole. So it takes the whole body of Christ to represent Christ. And here's the body of Christ. Are we doing these three things simultaneously, woven together? Not at odds with each other. Not competing with each other. But a, a beautiful blend together of teaching in the structures and systems of our culture. And proclaiming the good news of King Jesus and caring about every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among people. We do this uh, balanced ministry to the whole person. Secondly, second essential, with the right motivation. Okay, so we can be doing all the right things, but if we don't have the right motivation, it's not Christ-like. And the right motivation here highlighted for us in verse 36 is compassion. 
Verse 36, seeing the people. I love that. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So our second essential to a Christ-like ministry is to have the right motive. Now, Ezekiel 34 is probably the backdrop of this statement by Jesus. In Ezekiel 34, God comes through the prophet Ezekiel and he condemns, he condemns the shepherds of that day because they were false shepherds and they were terrible shepherds and the people weren't cared for. And that's probably the backdrop of this in Jesus's mind. It's Ezekiel chapter 34. And what's happening here is Jesus is indicting the religious establishment. We talk a lot about the establishment in our culture these days. There's several of them. And well, there was one in Jesus' day. and It was a religious establishment. And he took them on. This peasant, this, this, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, he stood up to all of the power structures of his day. And he took them on. And that's what he's doing here. This is an indictment against the religious leaders of Israel. When he says the people are like sheep without a shepherd, he is pointing a finger at the scribes and Pharisees because they were the shepherds. They had shepherds. They were just terrible. Okay. And Jesus is bringing this out. They failed to have compassion for their people. It was a complete failure. The Pharisees were at best hirelings and at worst, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And so God's people, chosen Israel, are without spiritual food and water under their care. They're, they're without guidance. They're without protection. And Jesus here sees this. He, he understands this. Israel, his, his relatives, his countrymen are lost sheep wandering aimlessly about. They have no purpose. They have no meaning. They're in darkness. He says here very two important words. Look at it in verse 36. They are, because they have no shepherds that are good shepherds, they are distressed and dispirited. They are harassed and helpless. They are troubled and thrown down. It's a violent term, especially the second one. It's got, it's got the picture of a wolf has come to a sheep and tossed it about and tossed it to the ground. They are used and abused. They are mistreated. And they have been tossed aside. The Pharisees are fleecing the sheep. The Pharisees are making livings off of the sheep without compassion for the sheep. And Jesus sees this, seeing the masses, seeing the crowds, you see. They would be like, think for a moment of, of kids, kids whose parents abandoned them. Kids who have left to, to fend for themselves Raise themselves, feed themselves, care for themselves. And, and if you saw that, if you, if you walked into a home where all of a sudden we've discovered the parents left two weeks ago and here, here are four or five kids on their own and, and you would see that and they would be, they would be distressed and dispirited and they're, they're like kids without a parent and your, and your heart breaks for them, right? This would be like in a, in a nursing home setting where abuse and mistreatment is going on and, and these dear older people can't, can't do anything about it really and it's unknown and it's secret and, and you walk in and you discover something like that and you see the widespread nature of something like that and, and it just tears you up inside, right? Even more so if one of those persons is your mother or father or grandparent. That's that's what I think this looked like to Jesus as he looked out over his own nation, over God's people 
who had been given the word of God and the oracles and the prophets and the covenants and all those things. And he looks at these people and they have been tossed aside like sheep without a shepherd. They have been abused and misused. And it is because of this that this this word felt compassion. This speaks of a deep gut wrenching, gut wrenching feeling deep in the Lord Jesus. He was fully human and he was moved at the deepest level of his soul for what he saw. But I want you to notice verse 36. It started with him seeing the people. You must see the people. You must get your eyes open to the plight of the people, the masses, the crowds. And I want you to notice something else that is so critically important about this. Even talking about all of the physical care that we would give as Christians. I want you to see in verse 36 this. What caused the deep gut-wrenching compassion of Christ was not their physical need, but their spiritual need. What tore him up inside was not primarily a disease, but their spiritual lostness. That they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, self-assessment. What do you see? What do you see? When you see crowds, when you go to places where people have gathered, when you see the news, what do you see? And then secondly, what do you feel? You see, seeing leads to feeling. What do we feel when we see people who are distressed and dispirited, harassed and helpless, troubled and thrown down? Do we feel smug or brokenhearted? Do we feel cavalier or concerned? Do we feel flippant or do we feel? Do we feel anything at all? Christ-like ministry means we share in the compassion of Christ for those who are lost, who are under the dominion of Satan and sin. They are not the enemy. They are the mission field. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. Demons and devils, the enemy, not another human being. We are to love everyone. We are to love our enemies. We are to love everyone with Christ-like compassion. That's the call here this morning. I mean, if this past week has shown us anything, it has shown us this, that the masses are still sheep without shepherds. It has shown us that the physical maladies of life point us to the spiritual problem. These physical things of life that will always be in this world until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. They are here to be indicators to us and pointers to us that there is a deeper spiritual problem. The problem of sin. There is a deeper disease. A more heinous virus, right? A more terrible outcome than physical death. Jesus had a balanced ministry to the whole person with the right motive of compassion. And thirdly, it was bathed in prayer. Look at verse 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Our third essential 
is that our ministries, if they are to be Christ-like, must be saturated and bathed and covered in dependent prayer. Dependent prayer. So what's happening here is he's going from a shepherding problem, right? All they had shepherds. They were just wolves in sheep's clothing. Now he's moving to a farming problem. He's, he's changing metaphors from the sheepfold to the field. And he tells us here that there is an abundant crop out there, but that crop is apparently impatient. <laughs> it's plentiful, but there is a labor shortage. Terrible labor shortage. And, and the harvest needs to be brought in. And the crop is not going to wait because crops don't wait. And, and yet, oh, this terrible problem, verse 37, the workers are few. The workers are few. It reminds me of that Kenny Rogers song. You know it? You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Four hungry children. And what? The crop in the field. The crop in the field. It's got to be brought in. We stop everything we're doing to bring in the crop. You work sun up to sundown. Seven days a week to deal with the crop. The crop in the field must be tended to now. There's a sense of urgency. Now Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful right now. But the workers are so few. So limited. So scarce. You think the fast food restaurants have a problem? (laughs) Always hiring, right? They don't even change their signs anymore. They just attach them to the building permanently. (laughs) Hiring. That's the church. That's the cause of the gospel. Always hiring. Always in need. There are so many sheaves and so few farmhands to bring them in. John 4.35 says, do not say yet there are four months and then comes the harvest. Don't even say you got four months. Jesus said, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. In chapter 10, Jesus is about to send the 12 out into the harvest. He's going to give them missionary instructions. He's going to launch them on their first foray into ministry. Up until this point, this is a watershed moment in the gospel, in the life of Jesus. Up until this moment, he's done it all himself. They've done nothing. They've been passive bystanders. They've been watching Jesus do everything. He's done all of the teaching, all of the proclaiming, and all of the healing. But that is about to change, and change forever. He's about to share ministry with the disciples. He's about to invest them with power to go teach and heal and, and proclaim the gospel. This is a watershed moment in redemptive history that continues even to this moment. Jesus is sharing ministry with co-workers. That's us. That's us. And he looks out onto the fields perpetually and says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus is about to send the twelve out into a population of approximately three million Israelites. That is one apostle for every 250,000 people. Jerusalem itself was estimated to have 90,000 in population. And here they are, this little ragtag band of fishermen and tax collectors and others thrown together by the Lord Jesus, launched into this massive arena of ministry. I mean, even today, if we're very, very generous and say that there are one billion Christians, very generous, it may be half that, it may be 25%. Let's just say there's a billion Christians in the world. Great. 
There's 7 billion people who aren't. <laughs> right? The, the harvest, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. We've already learned in this gospel that we're on a narrow road and there are few who find it. And because there are few who find it, that means we're always the minority. And if we're always the minority, that means we're always shorthanded. There is always a labor shortage in the cause of the kingdom. And so we got a help wanted sign perpetually hanging on every church. So what are we to do about it? What are we to do about it? What would we expect next to happen in verse 38? Matthew, Matthew, you're the man for the job. Go open a recruitment booth. That's what we need to do. We need to start recruiting workers. Matthew, you're going to be the guy. You're used to sitting in a booth. Put up a sign. Get out some applications. Start hiring workers for the kingdom. Matthew, go do that. Is that the answer? No. No, it's not the answer. Oh, I know what we need to do. Elders, you need to go hire a consultant and you need to brand the church. And, and then you need to mobilize the members into this great, this great workforce. Is that the answer? No, it's not the answer. None of these are the answer. What is the answer? Beg the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. That's what beseech means. It means to plead and to beg. It means to pray to God Almighty. This is a reference to the Father, the Lord of the harvest. We are to plead with Him and beg Him to send out, forcefully cast out. That's the word, to cast out demons. We are to forcefully ask Him to forcefully cast out workers, laborers into whose harvest? His harvest. He owns it. It belongs to Him. He knows where they are This is a a call to prayer. Bathe our ministries in prayer. What kind of prayer? Specifically, God send help. God, we need reinforcements. This is the prayer of Christ-like ministry. This is amazing. The only command in this entire passage is the word beseech. It is the only command here. It's also an unexpected command. After Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, we would expect him to say so, join the harvest. We would expect him to say so, sign up and let's go. But instead he says, get on your knees. Don't go anywhere except down in dependence on God. So it's an unexpected command. It's also a revealing command, isn't it? Because it reminds us of our constant need for help. It's a command that shows the twelve and every apostle and disciple, or every disciple after them, it shows us that we're always inadequate. That we're never enough. That, that this, this command just lays upon redemptive history. Because we don't have what it takes to meet the need. So, so it's a great revealing command of our dependence and our inadequacy and our need for help at all times. So not only is it the only command, an unexpected command, a revealing command, but it's also, sadly, an ignored command. This is an ignored command. It is appalling and shocking how little this is actually prayed. How little we have prayed this. How little we, we hear each other pray this. It is appalling. And why is that? Because finally, this is a dangerous command. This is a dangerous command because you prayed this prayer and you may just become the worker you prayed for. That's exactly what happens with the twelve. 
Chapter 10, they're sent out for service. They're first praying this prayer and lo and behold, oh, we just prayed ourselves right into a mission trip. (laughs) Dangerous command. And that's why it is appallingly so seldom prayed. God is calling on every disciple to get on their knees and beg the Lord of the harvest to send out. To forcefully remove from your current setting and move you into another setting to be workers into his harvest. You cannot pray that prayer with integrity without being willing to go. Without being willing to be the sent out one. So I challenge you in that. I challenge you to pray this prayer, to embrace this prayer, to trust the Lord with this prayer. To bathe your ministry in prayer. We are to pray for workers then. And we'll talk about that for a moment as we are close to wrapping up. What does this look like internally, in-house? Okay. How do we pray this in-house? Well, you can pray for more elders, more deacons, teachers, home group leaders, mission board members, choir members, Awana and Good News Club workers. Bulletin announcement on the Good News Club there, by the way. You can pray for nursery helpers, children's church workers. Mostly you can just pray that God would bring us more engaged, bought in, active serving members. Build our church with such kinds of people. You can pray that we will pray this prayer. You can pray that God would stir up prayer in Kerrville Bible Church. That everything we do would be saturated with it and bathed in it. Because we are inadequate and we are dependent 100% on God. That's what you can do internally. Externally, will you beg God for more pastors, more professors, missionaries, translators, evangelists, other Christian workers who can teach the word of God, proclaim the gospel, and help people in their physical needs and do so with compassion. Pray for more helpers and more workers. If we were to surmise using this passage of what the number one cause of the labor shortage is, what would it be? What is the number one cause of the labor shortage in Christian work? Lack of prayer. The answer is prayer. And so if there is a shortage, then that's the reason. We're not, as a body of Christ, Praying this prayer with a blank check, with a with a open mind to however God would want to answer it. If lack of prayer is the number one cause of labor shortage, that is something we can do something about, and we can do it right now. Amen. Right now. So let's go into the Lord in prayer. Bow your heads with me. And let's spend a few moments being obedient to this passage. Being disciples. Following Christ. I want to give you some quiet time for you to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You can pray internally. In-house prayers for the needs of our church. And then pray externally. For the greater body of Christ at large. The world needs more missionaries, pastors, elders, preachers, teachers, evangelists. Parents, will you be so bold to pray this on behalf of your children? Parents, would you be so bold to be able to 
release your children to greater causes than the American dream? You may be thinking, well, I'm older, I'm retired. Uh, my, my, my chances pass me up. Says who? You may be in a position in your life, financially, where you could go and do and be. Father, if these events of this past week haven't done anything, they should wake us up and open our eyes to eternal realities. Lord, we would ask you and beg you and plead with you this morning that you would send out workers into your harvest. That you would dislodge families, retirees, young people. That you would set young people in this church right now on a path for full-time vocational ministry. That they would be considering amongst all of their many options that... You perhaps could be calling them to be a seminary professor or an evangelist or overseas missionary or who knows what. Lord, we would uh, just ask that you would have your way. It's your harvest. We want to be your faithful servants in it. Call us. Send us. Keep us here. Send us out. Whatever you want to do, Lord. We're not our own. We belong to you. It's your harvest. We pray your will would be done in Jesus' name. Amen.